this, kind of cup them, and imagine you know, that corn there in your hands, and put one hand down now, because it was one handful. And think about living off of that much of anything for a day, much less moldy corn. And I'm not sure how we're supposed to identify with that. When Paul was in prison in Ephesus, they didn't feed him anything. Now the local Christians would come and bring him food because you had to have somebody bring you your food from the outside. Which means the local Christians in Ephesus are giving up some of the meager provisions that they have, being people who just get by day to day, hand to mouth, and taking bites out of their own mouths and off of their own plates to send something for Paul and the people that are staying near the prison with him keep touch with him, to talk to him, and to work with him. The Christians in Ephesus were literally emptying themselves of some of their provisions to feed Paul until this gift from Philippi comes, the money that can buy a lot more food to take care of Paul and his co-workers, and maybe some of the poor in Ephesus as well. Put food back in their mouths, and fill their bellies. That means that the Christians in Philippi who are living day to day and hand to mouth and, and just getting by are taking some bites out of their mouths to put in the mouths of the Ephesians, to put in the mouths of Paul. Hey, Wu says that when she lived in the prison camp, they give her this handful of corn or of rice and she needed to make a testimony about Jesus. Who wants to hear about a Jesus that they don't know? And who can get you killed? And whose name isn't supposed to be spoken out loud? Who's going to sit down and have theology class? So what do you do? Hey, Wu decided to give half of her rice or half of her corn to somebody who was sick or weak to make sure that they could eat enough to hopefully continue to endure. So take your hand out in front of you now again. Look right there. Now... Kind of half it, fold it in half like that. See, this is the kind of love that God has shown us. The kind of love that takes half of what meager remains that there are to put in the mouth of somebody else. The kind of love that empties and opens and sets down privileges and power to make a testimony when nothing else will work and to bring about love when nothing else can bring it. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, the verses that we just heard are a part of chapter 2, and we're going to read from them again in a moment together. When Paul wrote those words, he's writing to a church that might have looked something like we do, even though a different culture, context, maybe a different level of wealth and luxury that they enjoyed. But the Philippian church is free. Oh, sure, there's slaves amongst their numbers as well as freed men, but they're not in prison. They're out and about. They can choose what and when to go to church and what to wear and whether they might go buy some meat from the marketplace or something else. They have options. And we have so many options. How is Paul in prison supposed to connect with you and me when the problem we face today might be we got a scratch on our SUV in the church parking lot and it ruins our week, or we go to lunch after church and we can order whatever we want, but we find a hair in it. Oh. Take it back. 
I get it. But what's that God on holy core? And Paul wants to connect with us, even with our first world problem. And he knows that a church like Philippi and a church like Bentonville have a few things in common. They're growing in faith and in number. The church in Philippi was the church that Paul wrote this joy-filled letter to because they didn't have a major crisis. They weren't falling apart. They weren't fighting and bickering with each other to you know, the end of the evening and calling it church service. They were actually doing pretty well, like we are. And yet Paul knows that if doing well is based on feeling good and having enough to eat and not finding a hair or mold in your corn, it can all crumble and fall apart. You need a basis to make sure that unity stays unity when the times get tough and when you disagree about something that's a really deeply held conviction. So he writes chapter 2 to the Philippians, even though they're doing well, to remind them of how unity works. It starts off in verse 1 with these if statements by Paul. So open up your notebook or your bulletin or even in your Bible to take some notes. And I want you to see in, in verse 1 that Paul uses five if statements. Let me read them again. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, if there's affection and sympathy. Now Paul isn't saying that these things do not exist for the Christians. He's using the if statements to say they do exist. We might use the word since they exist. Why would Paul put it this way? Many of you who are parents or grandparents have probably found yourself in a similar situation to Paul. You want to make the point to this child, but you don't want to make the point in a way that seems condescending or too powerful or high and mighty. You don't want to command them because commanding the child sometimes causes them to become more obstinate. And so what you do is you see the problem and you get down next to the child like this, right? On their eye level. And you look at them and you say, now, you love your sister, don't you? Did you hear the if statement in there? You know, if you love your sister. If you love your sister, don't you? And then what are they supposed to say? There's, everybody, go ahead. This is a participatory church. What are they supposed to say? Yes, yes I do. Now, because they're children, sometimes they go, No, I don't! You know, no, no, no. You love your sister, don't you? Yes. And you want everybody to have fun while your cousins are here, don't you? Yes. So why don't you share the toy? Ah, the point was, share the toy. Right? But we reason together, and Paul does this with you and me in the Philippians. He goes, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and see, pre Paul's a preacher, and preachers love to do this too. They like to get people to say, hey, don't you? Yes, but they like to get people to say, amen. amen. So, so think, amen. See, I'm happier. Is there any encouragement in Christ? And a preacher like Paul could say it like this, or I might say it like this. We have encouragement in Christ, don't we? And you all would say, Amen. Amen. So you can make my morning this morning. We have comfort from His love. Amen. 
participation in the Spirit. Amen. We have affection and sympathy. Amen. You see how that works. And now, like Paul, I've got you. See, we all agree. You're not as mad at me as you thought you were. Right? This is what Paul is, is doing and teaching them to do. What is the basis for agreement and for unity? And he's about to give them the most beautiful poetic expression of the gospel as the foundation for their unity. But first he draws them in with these statements. We all have this. We all have Christ and His love. We have His affection. We want to share it. And then he drops, you know, the share your toy moment on them is this. It's in verse 2. He says, so complete my joy by being of the same mind. Look at how neatly that works. If this, if this, if this, and we don't see how they all relate, then be of the same mind. Paul funnels them down to the point where he says, because we enjoy these privileges, we want to have the same mind. And this is a very important word in the letter to the Philippians. So, I want you to take a few notes right now on this word set about the mind. In your notes, you might put mind or mindset. And I'm going to show you four places in today's passage where Paul uses this Greek word for mind. And it's kind of a fun word, so we'll say it together today. It's freneto. Okay, everybody say it with me. Freneto. Say it one more time. Freneto. Say it like you're having a lot of fun. Right? Freneto. See, you're having fun. He uses this word four times in this passage. He says it in verse 2 twice. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then he'll say at the end of the verse, full accord and of one mind. Mark both of those. In verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. And you want to mark the word humility. In the Greek, it is a compound word. He takes phreneto, and he takes another word that has to do with humble, and he makes a compound word to say being of humble mind. But we have an easier word to use in English. Humility is easier than saying humble-mindedness. So we put humility. But in Greek, it's a compound word. And then in verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. So mark that one. And there are your four occurrences in this chapter of when Paul uses this word about mindset. Why does Paul do this? Paul understands that the heart and the mind are not two completely separate organs in our body. The heart that feels and the mind that thinks are intimately linked in the spirit of a person. When God made us, male and female in His image, when He created humanity, it says He made Adam, formed Him, He breathed life with Him, and He became a living nefesh in Hebrew. It means a living spirit. And we, these living spirits, are closely linked, mind and body and heart. Our will and our feelings and our thinking are often almost the same thing. You could say it like this, they follow a heartbeat after each other. What we think about is what we give our hearts to. Or what we love is what we take the time to think about. And so Paul, reasoning with them, gives them these words. He wants them to devote and turn their thoughts to something significant. And what he wants them to do is, is to think about unity and how being of a one mind means they need to empty themselves. So he gives them these commands in verse 2, 3, and 4, and then he gives them a poem. Because you can speak to the mind, but you also need to speak to the heart. Because they're linked. 
So first he speaks to the mind, and he says this in 2, 3, and 4. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love. And if you would put up that next slide where we have each of these, you'll see that the one main command here is to be unified in our minds. That is the controlling command verb of these three verses, 2, 3, and 4. And, and all these other commands are actually, in Greek, they're participles, they're a subset. It's a Greek way of stylizing your text so that it's like bullet points. And so this is a very accurate drawing. Paul goes, the big point is to have the same mind. And the ways you can do that are by having the same love. Turn your hearts towards the same things. Right? This is what happens when we go on a mission trip together. And then we love those people. We begin to love other people with the same love, and then it unifies our church because we want to work hard together, pull our money, pull our time to serve something that we love. He says, be unified in spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others as more important than yourself. And don't look only to your own interests, but the interests of others. All of these are subpoints of the controlling idea, the reason Paul would get down on the knee and say, now we have love in Christ, we have you know, the fellowship and all that, right, right, right? The point is this, so that you can structure in your head the most important thing about maintaining the health of the church is being in the same mindset together. And the way you stay in the same mindset together is by emptying yourself of importance and seeing others as being important. This is so countercultural for us, just like it would have been for the Philippians. You know, Rome was a power-first culture. And the West, it's not just America's problem, but most of the global West, in fact, most of the world in many ways, is a power-first world. And so in Rome, they, they literally prided themselves in being able to brag well. Well, here, maybe we want to have on a veneer of humility. But still, is that what you put on your resume? You know, when you want to sell yourself to somebody, you put the best attributes. How do we go on first dates? You know, wear our shabby clothes and be like, they'll see who I really am. <laughs> you know, we groom and we primp and we spray stuff on that we never wear and we go buy a new shirt or whatever, and we go out, and boy, we're just, you know, stunned. <coughs> and boy, aren't they surprised later. They find out we put, you know, power forward, best impression forward. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We go on the car lot, and we act like we deserve the Maserati. I'll settle for the, you know, actor of Paul's like, this will not work in bringing about unity for the church. The only thing that will work is the story of the gospel of Jesus, and he wants to give that to them and connect it to their hearts, so he gives it to them in poetry. And this is what verses 5 through 11 are all about. Is it's artistic, and it's beautiful, and it may or may not look that way in the text of your Bible. I notice that the notebooks don't have it sort of staggered as poetry, but it's okay. It's an early Christian poem. It's probably a hymn. Scholars call it the Christ hymn. And it may be that Paul himself wrote it. Or maybe the jailer in Philippi wrote it. Or Lydia, we don't know. Somebody wrote it in these early years of Christianity. And so Paul gives them this poetic picture of Jesus, which is their story of real unity. 
And it goes like this. It says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now remember, it's poetry. And I could give a sermon, you know, we could do some off-the-cuff theological work right now about what does it mean that he emptied himself. But let's save that for a class sometime. Okay. For right now, I want you to see this beautiful symmetry. Because Jesus empties himself, God exalts him. Because he humbled himself, God gives him an honored name. Because he was obedient to death, God makes every knee bow to him. You see the symmetry in the poems, poetry. And so, you can go ahead and take that one down now. Because I want to see your faces and your eyes. When Paul sends this to them, this is his way of reminding them that Jesus had the prerogative of being God. He didn't have to let go of the form of God. He didn't have to leave heaven. Jesus had the right to buy what He wanted, build what He wanted, do what He wanted. He sustains everything by His powerful Word. It took an empty. He gave His corn away. He gave His rice away. You know what I'm saying? He, he took something out so that we could receive something. For a while on earth, He doesn't do anything of His own accord. He says in the Gospel of John, I do only what the Father has shown me to do. I say only what the Father has shown me to say. That is Jesus in some mysterious beautiful way, laying down his rights and opening his hands to let go of something so that you and I could be reached with a word that we wouldn't have understood. And this picks up on a beautiful storyline that was told all through Scripture. And now Jesus in this poem is being mapped over top of people like Adam. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? Big no no. Big Don't you think that God would have liked to have gotten down on the knee next to Adam and been like, now we wouldn't want you know the whole world to fall into sin, would we? <laughs> you know, Eve goes up to the tree and it says she saw that it was good and she took it and she ate it and then she gave some to her husband and he took it and he ate it. And all through Scripture, there are these stories that the Jews wrote about real events, where they purposefully map the language over top of moments like with Moses and with David. And they use words like took or saw that it was good. And they tell these stories about when people grasp at things and try to become like God. Adam and Eve heard from the, from the serpent, the tempter from Satan, that if you eat that, you'll be like God. And they tried to grasp godliness. They wanted that form instead of the form he gave them. They took it. And then later we read about Moses. Remember, he strikes a rock. God said, speak to the rock and it will produce water. And he strikes it. He had also said, he said to the people, now what must we do for you people? They go, me and God must take care of you people. And he strikes the rock. Can you see how he is taking godliness into his own hands in the form of God? What must we do for you people? And he grasps and he strikes when he was supposed to be open-handed. And David, you know, he sees and he takes Bathsheba. Story after story after story until we come to Jesus. And it says he had 
the godly form. He was divine. He had the power and he opened his hands. Let go. And we know what they did to his hands when he opened them. They nailed one here and nailed one here and they let him clean out. Open and let go because it's the only way to unity. This is why Paul, when he writes his letters, he doesn't say to the churches, here are you know, eight theological truths that will keep your church healthy for the next 2,000 years. He doesn't say, here's seven principles of you know, godly leadership that you need to like, you know, follow these. He doesn't go with all these. No one knew how to teach theology like Paul, and yet when he needs to get to the point of all points, he uses a poem. Because now we found a better Adam, one who will let go of power to take hold of your heart and your hand, and we don't want to tell this story wrong, so let's tell it in the most beautiful ways we know, and he tells a poem. And he got the idea from the Lord Jesus himself. Man, that just gave me the, the Holy Spirit high this morning whenever I got here. And I listened to the first service communion. And Todd Miller, not knowing what was in my notebook, talked about Jesus washing feet. And it's in there. And then I get to second service and we didn't talk to Ed. And Ed comes up and he's like, you know what God put on my heart today is when Jesus washed people's feet. Because when Jesus looks at his disciples at the Last Supper and he wants to show them the full extent of his love, he doesn't do theology. He is the perfect theology. So he just does. Compassion. And he puts on a play for them. A little skit about what it means to be loved and unified. In the Gospel of John, it says he got up from his place. You ever notice that? He left his place, right? You're supposed to be reading John seeing he left his bench, but also he left his place. And he takes off his garment, you know, his, his identity, his form, and he sets it aside, the thing that would have shown that he was a rabbi. And he comes over and he takes a towel, and right now he'd be kind of exposed in front of him. He'd have on like a linen wrap, probably undergarment. And, and so he takes the towel and he wraps that around over top as well. He gets down and he looks them in the eyes. And he begins to take their feet into his hands and wash them. And say, as I'm doing for you, you should do for each other. And he washes these feet and he looks at them and it's like he's saying, we really love each other, don't we? You know, we've got joy in the Holy Spirit together, don't we? And he comes to Peter and Peter's the one who goes, you know, no! Not, my, not me! And Jesus goes, you have no part of me if I don't wash you. And he's like, all right, I'm all in. Then heads, hands, feet, let's do the whole thing. Let's get a shower. And Jesus goes, no, no, you've got to do this my way. If I made you clean, you're clean. All you need is your feet being washed. And in this way, Jesus is telling Peter, you don't get to play either kind of power card. You don't get to play the power card where you tell Jesus no. And you don't get to play the power card where you tell Jesus yes, but do it this way. All you get to do is to say, thank you, Jesus. This is the basis of unity. He gets back up after, you know, wiping their feet off on this towel. He sets the towel aside. He puts the robe back on. He looks like a rabbi again now. And he goes back to his place. Paul puts it in a poem and calls it the gospel. 
says, if you want to know how to keep your health strong, healthy, church, into the future, do this. Learn this. Um, give you one little idea challenge. Sometimes it's helpful to take a piece of scripture like this and write it out in your own words as if Paul was writing it to you. I would love to receive anybody who rewrites this poem in your own words this week and just to be able to read them and maybe to anonymously share one or two next week. I think that would be so neat. What if Paul was writing these words to you? What if Jesus himself did play sang this song over you? Let's stand up together this morning. This is why we love Him and serve Him and love each other. It's no other basis that we have to be a church but what Jesus did and who He is. Today, we offer that you can pray with us, come forward, come to the back and meet our elders, and we would love to receive you. Oh, through all